Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to episode 383 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, and uh, host of Waking Up to Narcissism, Waking Up to Narcissism question and answer podcast, and Murder on the Couch. A new episode is coming out soon. And when we last left in part one of this concepts of uh, what we do with uncertainty and discomfort. And in all of those uh, wonderful concepts, we want certainty so bad that we spend so much time and emotional energy and calories trying to find certainty, trying to to find a, a sense of control and order, which is, I want to say it's not a bad thing, but we kind of talked about in part one, it can be a challenge. It's a nice way to say maybe it can be a, a, a bad thing or a difficult thing. But I Threw in the transcript of the last episode into into a, a pretty amazing product called Portfolio Pals. It's the it's an artificial intelligence program that then takes whatever article you have or transcript and then throws a summary together. What I think is really funny about it is it has a comedy mode, so you can do a summary that sounds very smart and intelligent. Then you can hit comedy mode, and it's if a stand up comedian just spent hours in a writer's room tearing down your work. So just for fun, let me do this. Uh, so the Here's the summary of the last episode. Part one says uh, that Tony discussed the human brain's desire for certainty, how it can lead to discomfort and anxiety when things don't make sense. Then this discomfort often leads to unhealthy coping mechanisms or rumination. Then we talked about one solution to dealing with uncertainty is practicing mindfulness to create new neuropathways in the brain. And I shared a couple of examples where people remain calm and present in these unexpected circumstances. And then we also highlighted the, the fallibility of human memory. And I referenced a bunch of studies that show how memories can change over time and how they're influenced by suggestion and misinformation. And then that led to the importance of accepting multiple perspectives rather than seeking absolute certainty, because that can really not only drive us crazy, but it can, it can really get us stuck in this all or nothing black or white thinking. And especially when we're trying to have conversations with another person who can have their own opinion, which is okay. Then I did talk about the connected conversations. I love how the artificial intelligence says, Tony suggests four pillars to consider. Assuming good intentions, refraining from telling others that they're wrong, accepting that emotions, thoughts, and memories are fluid, and accepting the discomfort that comes with being human. I love that. The, uh, I then discussed reasons why people avoid emotional discomfort, such as fear of being vulnerable and pain avoidance. And then we talked about healthy coping strategies like mindfulness, therapy, emotional regulation techniques, because those promote emotional resilience and well-being, and how honesty in relationships can actually lead to growth and resilience, and then that eventually leads to even more trust, and then uh, we find emotional balance. Those are all essential. So in conclusion, the robot says that I emphasize the importance of working on being uncomfortable, discomfort, and uncertainty instead of trying to control everything. By embracing thoughts and feelings and emotions and taking meaningful action, then we find purpose and joy and acceptance in life. And then it says that I promise to address more concepts in part two, and I encourage readers, I guess this is the transcript, to send in questions or thoughts. So I did receive some questions or thoughts, and so I would love to now run this through comedy mode. And let's see, let me kind of see what this says, and let's see how hilarious that Portfolio Pals is. So this is going to be that same summary and it is now going into comedy mode. Okay, this is going to be the live read of comedy mode. It's pretty short, so I guess that could be a good thing. Comedy mode of the transcript of my part one of this episode and what I just read to you. In the super condensed version, the speaker is like, hey guys, we all want certainty, but uncertainty makes us uncomfortable, which leads to anxiety and unhealthy coping mechanisms. Okay, so far that's not very funny. So let's practice mindfulness and be present to deal with uncertainty better. They share stories about flight delays and being pulled over by a cop and how being mindful helped them stay calm. They also talk about how memory and mention of a study on flashbulb memories. Then they have a funny combo 
with their spouse about American Idol and memory fallibility. They mentioned studies on false memories too. Okay, this isn't very humorous. I've always seen the comedy mode button and I've wanted to click it, but but I'm learning my lesson now. They mentioned studies on false memories too. The main point is that memory isn't always reliable. So let's be accepting of different recollections. They talk about memory and legal stuff and conclude that while memory isn't certain, it's still important. In conversations, they say to assume good intentions, don't argue and accept differences. Seeking certainty can be frustrating, so let's accept our inner experiences and discomfort. Avoidance of discomfort isn't helpful, so let's be vulnerable. Okay, there's really nothing, literally nothing funny in that. And I just checked again. I have comedy mode clicked. So I don't know if you've ever been to a comedy show, but sometimes um, I, I like to go see stand-up comedy. And there are times where there is an opener or maybe a middle act that just isn't funny. So maybe let me practice what I preach. I'm noticing the discomfort of wanting to edit out that part because I hope that you will stay with me because the rest of this episode, I believe, is going to be much more helpful. So where we did leave off was I just talked about different ways that are reasons why we may avoid emotional discomfort. If you I, if you haven't heard part one, I really do encourage you to go back and listen. That episode is one that I, I did spend a lot of time on with the examples and these concepts because what we do with uh, discomfort, what we do with uncertainty does cause a lot of emotional pain and and suffering that I believe is somewhat unnecessary. So we left it by talking about reasons why people avoid emotional discomfort. And I went into detail on these, but it was fear of vulnerability, pain avoidance, stigma, social norms, the lack of emotional skills, because we haven't been taught to deal with uncomfortable emotions, fear of losing control. That happens often, especially with couples in my office, and an avoidance of reality. Some people just use avoidance as a way to escape from the reality in their life. And if somebody is unhappy in aspects of their life, They may not want to self-confront and think that there might be something that they can do different. And I can think of situations where people will be in my office and they're here to get better. A lot of people are. A lot of people are here to process things and become better people and learn the things that they don't know that they don't even know. But every now and again, you will find someone that will hit a point where it's almost a sense of a panic, truly, where if they're learning some new tools, it's really fascinating. Some people will say, oh my gosh, where have these tools been? Maybe these tools of radical acceptance and it's okay to just be me and I figure out what my values are and I move away from the social compliant goals that I thought I was supposed to do. It all makes so much sense and here we go. But then there are some that it really is difficult for them to hear that if they would have had these tools a long time ago, that their life would be different. And that is that is absolutely the you know a, a very a scary version of acceptance until it isn't. And that's one where I like to give that example of I would have loved to have figured out my career well before I spent 10 years in the computer software industry, or I would have loved to have got uh, an adult ADHD diagnosis well before I was in my 40s, because I believe that I could have done a whole lot more had I had this stuff figured out earlier. And the reality is I could have acceptance, but I didn't. And here I am. So now we move on. So while that avoidance does provide temporary relief, it doesn't solve the underlying issues. It doesn't help you figure out who you are and what really matters to you. And that's why we turn to things, unhealthy coping mechanisms to avoid this pain of discomfort. But then if we are willing to do the work, go to therapy, really self-discover, self-confront, deep dive, and learn that that pain may feel, and it might be scary, but we get through it and we live. And then when we do that, then we actually can learn these healthy coping strategies and emotional regulation techniques. And those are more beneficial in the long run. And then those methods help us to confront and manage uncomfortable feelings, which leads to far greater emotional resilience and well-being and actually starting to find that what it feels like to be us overall can be good and positive and fun. And we can have a sense of purpose. And then that doesn't mean that we will not feel discomfort or we will not feel pain. But we will. And when we do, we accept it because those are thoughts and feelings and emotions. But then we're also going to continue to turn to things that matter to us and have connections with people that we really care about. And over time, we even learn to then move away from those unhealthy relationships. And we stop doing things that we think we're supposed to do because people say that we are supposed to do them. Because once you really find your sense of self, your purpose, your values, and you stop trying to get the validation from other people... And you just learn to be and do and surround yourself with people who are mutually beneficial relationships, then that can just be an amazing place to be. Yes, you still have the the ups and downs and the highs and lows, but then what it feels like to be you, you return to a home base that you're a good person, not the what's wrong with me or I'm broken. So let's uh, let's dig into today. So people a lot, I feel like I am often asked to explain the difference between sitting with a feeling or thought so or recognizing the validity of the thought. 
and then moving forward versus feeling the feelings, recognizing the thought, and then sitting in it. And I, I hope that that resonates. Let me even try to shorten that. So I often have people say that, okay, I recognize, you know, I, I know I need to sit with my feelings, feel my feelings, sit in the pain cave, all of those things, which I, I do, that is a great place to be because now that we're moving away from avoidance and we're embracing the discomfort, now here's those feelings. But it's basically, what do I do with them? So I have people that will say, okay, now I've, and I sat with my feelings all day and I let them out and I sobbed and I cried and I felt and I was exhausted. And then I woke up the next day and now what do I do next? And that's a big part of what I feel like has been my own personal journey, especially when I went through the, the and it's funny, look at me. I went through the situation of the, the accident uh, that my daughter went through, a very severe accident where just so grateful that she's still here. But that brought up a lot of big emotions with me. And I did have days where I just felt like I didn't want to do anything. I ate a whole bag of uh, Reese's Thins peanut butter cups, which I haven't been able to go back to those yet. I ate far too many on that one day. But I would sit there and feel those feelings. And it was hard to then bring those along with me and do something of value. So I know that there are going to be times where those feelings are going to feel so big and so overwhelming that it will be hard to know what to do or to do anything. But I also uh, have conversations with people that say, okay, but if I acknowledge the feelings and, and I do let them in, but then I start taking action on these things that matter, like I like to talk about, then I feel like I'm ignoring the, the situation or the issue or the problem. And I can understand that because I, I really feel like this is one of those things where we just don't know what something new feels like until we start to experiment with that new thing. So if somebody says that I, I hear you and I hear you saying, okay, I'm noticing a thought and it is a thought, and I'm not beating myself up, and I'm not trying to say don't think it, but I feel like if I just start doing something else, then I'm ignoring the situation. When in reality, is sitting with those thoughts and staying in that situation, is that just looking for this certainty or trying to figure something out that might not be figure out a bull? So let me, uh, let me explain the difference. And this is the way I like to explain the difference to my, my clients. So let's start with sitting with a feeling or thought. So, so this involves acknowledging and accepting a thought or feelings without attempting to change or judge them. It's basically a mindfulness process, a mindful process of experiencing the emotion or thought fully, but not letting it dictate your actions or your decisions. So I can take in a thought and I cannot try to push it away. I cannot try to avoid it. I cannot turn to an unhealthy coping mechanism. I can let in that, <clears throat> excuse me, I can let in that thought or emotion and I can feel it. it might, I might feel it as tightness in my chest. I might feel it as an elevation in my heart rate. I might feel it as a pain in my stomach. And there it is. Now, after sitting with the emotion or thought, you then move on with your life, applying any insight gained, but not allowing the thought or feeling to dominate your thinking or dictate the things that you do next. So if I acknowledge that I have this fear or this elevated heart rate or this stomach ache, then if I sit with it for a moment, I really feel like what I can do is say, okay, what is my body trying to tell me? Is it telling me that I am afraid? Is it telling me that I am uncertain? Is it telling me that I don't have control in this moment? Because now as an adult human being, I can say, thank you body. And I can accept the fact that I may not have control in this moment and I may actually be fearful, but is that a productive thought or feeling to what my, my value-based goal is or what I do next. And I'll give you an example here in a second. So that's sitting with a feeling or thought. So then recognizing that validity of a thought, this means understanding that that thought is a valid response to a situation. But again, it does not mean that that thought is necessarily accurate or beneficial. So here's an example. If somebody feels scared before a public speaking event, that fear is valid because public speaking is a common fear. So recognizing the validity can help actually normalize the feeling. So if I am afraid of something, I'm afraid of public speaking. I'm, uh, I'm trying to think, we just went uh, paddle boarding over the weekend and I am just, I will admit it, I can run through the mountains for a hundred miles, but I am not good on the water. And I make jokes about that there are sharks in the lake, which there aren't, or fish are going to eat my feet or whatever that looks like. And I know that I'm okay. I have a life jacket on. I'm on a giant paddleboard, but it still brings me fear. So I am aware that that is scary to me and I can invite that fear to come with me. And then we had an amazing time paddleboarding. There were several times where I was still nervous or scared, but that didn't stop me from continuing to be and do. So back to this example, if somebody feels scared before a public speaking event, the fear is valid because public speaking is a common fear. Recognizing the validity can help normalize the feeling, 
However, moving forward doesn't mean you have to figure out why you are scared because you can just notice, I am scared. I have fear. Or you don't have to eliminate the fear completely. So I don't need to wait until I don't feel the fear and then I will speak. Instead, I can recognize the fear and I can still proceed with my speech. I can recognize this, even an irrational fear of the lake and the water, and then I can still move forward with with paddleboarding. Uh, and it's interesting too, I'll share a quick story that I thought about over the weekend. I, I didn't uh, share this with my family, not, not that this was something that I was trying to hide, but I've talked, it's been a long time since I talked about, it. I was ran over by a boat on my senior trip in high school at Lake Powell in Utah, a dual prop 28 foot sea ray, I believe the boat was called. And so I still have these really cool looking scars on both of my legs. And I spent that summer just laying in bed and there was a little bit of the dramatic, I may not be able to really run freely again. I would be able to walk, that would be fine. And so part of me feels like that is one of these uh, miracles of why doing the ultra running and running around a track to raise money for a school has, has just been such an incredible blessing and, and a feat for me. And so I remember thinking uh, over the weekend, I could go big with this story of, well, ever since the ever since the accident, ever since I was run over by a boat, did I mention I was run over by a boat? Who else has been run over by a boat? Let me show you my scars. But then the, the reality is that's me trying to even make sense of it. But I've always had a fear. I, I thought back to being at uh, lakes as a kid when we would go camping and my parents would fish and everybody would be out in a canoe and uh, actually ooh, having a moment right now. Uh, my brother, Tim, would try to tip the canoe over all the time on me, and that terrified me. There we go. Certainty. Boy, I take back everything I said in the part one. Certainty it, it discovered. I feel better. Kind of making fun of that a little bit. But I do, really do feel like there's probably some basis there, too. But, okay, maybe that's the case. Maybe it's part of everything, but that doesn't necessarily impact or affect what I do moving forward. So there's an acceptance there. So, again, that was part of that, recognizing the validity of a thought or or a feeling or an emotion. So we've got sitting with a feeling or thought. We've got recognizing the validity of a thought. So let's talk about ruminating more. So ruminating is a repetitive, it's, it's repetitive. It's an often negative pattern of thinking that gets you stuck in a loop and you find yourself focusing excessively on a problem or on the distress that you feel if you're not working toward a solution. And it can lead, and I feel like so often it leads to an increased amount of anxiety and this feeling of being stuck. Rumination leads to that feeling of being stuck. So when we are trying to achieve certainty or when we are trying to figure everything out, if we're trying to figure out a feeling, then that can lead to endless rumination because emotions are complex and they don't always have a clear-cut explanation or a solution. There are so many things that go into what it feels like to be you or me. And I'll refer to this a little bit later on, Richard Burton's book, On Being Certain. And there, there is just some really fascinating data in that study where, in that book where he talks about that I, and I believe now I'm so <laughs> not worried. I'm noticing that the way that we create and craft memory and that concepts around confabulation that I believe that I have read in that book that at any given moment, we have almost 2000 different processes firing in our brain that, that are reacting to the environment and reacting to all of the things that make us us and how we interact with things. So when we're trying to find a certainty, then you can go back to this, what I was just mentioning there, is that emotions are complex and they don't always have a clear-cut explanation or a solution because if you can imagine that when I'm interacting with someone, I have, let's say it's half of that, let's say it's a thousand different things happening in my brain at one given moment and now I'm going to say, let me just sort all thousand of those things out to achieve certainty and then I can move forward. That sounds a bit like a fool's errand. So in essence, then the difference lies in the action taken after the recognition of the feeling or the thought. So I acknowledge that feeling. I acknowledge that thought. Those are feelings. Those are thoughts. Check those out. Because healthy processing that involves acknowledging the feeling or thought, again, accepting it without judgment, and then continuing to move forward. Now, rumination, on the other hand, involves getting stuck on the feeling or thought which then impedes progress. It increases this emotional distress and leads us again to go back to continually trying to figure things out, control the, the situation, the thought, make sense of, achieve certainty, and those burn a lot of emotional calories. It's kind of like, uh, like if you get caught in a rainstorm. You can acknowledge you are wet. You can understand that it is uncomfortable, and, and then you can even seek shelter, the healthy processing. Or you stand in the rain, you fixate on how wet and uncomfortable you are, you ask, why, why did it have to rain on me without making a move to seek shelter? That would be more like rumination. Now, in both scenarios, you're wet from the rain. 
but the actions you choose to take can drastically and dramatically change your experience of the situation. So are you going to continue to sit out in the rain and ruminate and just figure why? Why did this happen? What is going on with this rain? And why am I so wet? Versus it is raining. I am noticing I am wet. These are things. And now I will seek shelter. So let's talk about a a lesser known Freud, Anna Freud. This is the daughter of the famous psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud. And she had a lot of contributions to the field of psychology as well with her ideas around child development and defense mechanisms. But one of the key concepts, and here's what I think is funny. My whole episode was starting around this concept of what she calls signal anxiety. And then that led me to then front fill all of the information from part one and up to now about dealing with discomfort and uncertainty. But now let's get to the heart of it. Signal anxiety. It is a type of anxiety that serves as a warning sign to the ego. Again, the ego is, uh, my friend Preston Pugmire says it's, you know, that adorable security guard that is trying to protect you, your, your ego. It's in, and Freud says it's one of the three divisions of the mind, according to Freudian theory. But your ego is, you're viewing everything through your ego. It's a protection. It's a way that you're trying to make sense of things. When I often like to say to couples, when we're doing couples counseling, when I'm throwing out my four pillars, that when somebody is then they've assumed the good intentions or there's a reason why somebody is saying or doing the things they're doing, and they're going to go into that pillar two of not telling the other person they're ridiculous or that's wrong or I don't believe you, even if that's how they feel, then that pillar three, I'm going to ask questions before I'm going to make comments. Here's where we have to step out of our ego. And I often describe to my clients as, I don't know why, but I think of it as almost you're in this barrel and your barrel is that protective ego. You have to step outside of your ego. You step outside of the barrel. You're basically exposed, somewhat naked. But I say that I want you to keep your, you're going to keep your hand over on the barrel because as you are asking questions of your partner and they are responding, you are going to want to defend your ego, but you're going to have your hand on it. You're going to say, okay, if I was in in that barrel right now, then I would be in full defense mode, but I'm aware that I have an ego. And I'm going to step outside of that and I'm going to listen to what this person has to say because that's going to help me stay in that empathetic question mode. Tell me more. And it's going to help me then have a better understanding so that we can have a connection. She's again talking about these uh, these defense mechanisms or this signal anxiety. So this type of anxiety that's a warning sign to the ego. And signal anxiety alerts the ego to potential danger and it indicates or actually it initiates the activation of, of the defense mechanisms which is what we've been talking about, to prevent the, the emergence of uncomfortable or distressing feelings. So let me give you a maybe hopefully an easy to understand example. So let's talk about a person named Sarah. So Sarah, picture her, she's a young professional and she was recently promoted to a, a team leader role at her workplace. So she is excited about the new position, but she feels anxious because she's never managed a team before and she's worried about making a mistake or not being rejected by her team members. And those again are feelings and they are valid. One day, her boss tells her that she will have to give a presentation to the entire department and explaining that the new project that her team is working on. So she has to explain that to the entire team. And now immediately, she feels a sense of anxiety. So this, according to Anna Freud, is signal anxiety. It's her mind's way of alerting her to the potential emotional danger of a variety of things that could happen. Embarrassment, criticism, a potential failure. So signal anxiety, it's signaling her anxiety to protect her. It's an alert to the potential emotional danger ahead. So in response to this anxiety, Sarah might engage in a, in a few different defense mechanisms to manage her anxiety. So we're going to talk about these. There's three of them that we're going to talk about. She might start over-preparing for the presentation. This is a nerdy thing called reaction formation. She may convince herself that, you know what, this presentation is not a big deal. Now we're talking about denial. And I cannot not do it. If you've done it as well, then thank you for the validation. But denial isn't just a river in Egypt. That's not even as funny when I say it now. When I was a kid, that was hilarious. But the third one is, or redirect her nervous energy into organizing her desk at home. That one's called displacement. And uh, we're going to talk about displacement versus projection here in a little bit as well. So we've got reaction formation, over-preparing for the presentation. We've got denial, convincing yourself that, you know, it's not even a big deal. I don't even care. Or displacement, I'm going to redirect my nervous energy into doing something else. So these are, are responses to this signal anxiety. So in, in, in this way, the signal anxiety serves as this warning system, this, this beacon, and it, it's giving Sarah an opportunity to protect her ego from being overwhelmed, uh, overwhelming stress or potential psychological harm. Is that a good thing or is it just a thing? 
So let's first talk about reaction formation. So reaction formation is it's this psychological defense mechanism where a person behaves in a way that is exactly opposite to their actual feelings in order to hide or suppress those feelings. So the person might feel uncomfortable, they might feel threatened or anxious about these true feelings. So they react in a way that is diametrically opposed to them. So for example, if somebody has feelings of dislike or even maybe even hatred towards a coworker, but instead of expressing these feelings, which could be deemed as, as socially unacceptable or not acceptable, especially in the workplace or create conflict, the person might go out of their way to be excessively kind and friendly toward the coworker. Because this is in this concept of reaction formation, the person is reacting to their own negative feelings by forming a behavior that is the complete opposite of what they truly feel. I mean, it's a way that people can avoid acknowledging feelings or desires that they deem acceptable, or I'm sorry, they, they, the opposite, that they deem unacceptable. So reaction formation can help people to avoid immediate discomfort or conflict, but it's also important to remember that it's a, a little bit of a form of denial because it actually doesn't deal with the underlying feelings or issues, but rather masks them. So over time, it can lead to problems. Now, why, what are those problems? One that is a huge one for me is inauthenticity. So regular use of reaction formation might lead you to or lead a person to feel like they're not living authentically. If they're continually saying, I love this person, but on the inside, they're tell my body, tell my visceral or gut reaction. Because you may feel like you're pretending or putting on a show for others, which can be emotionally exhausting. And it might lead to feelings of discontent or disconnection. And when you are not performing, I did the air quotes there then you can, that's where you can start to feel like that imposter syndrome, or you can start to feel like the what's wrong with me story, or uh, it's, you know, I, boy, I don't really believe this, but I need to keep putting on a good face. It can also, reaction formation can also lead to unresolved feelings because by denying or not dealing with your real feelings, a person might find that these feelings don't disappear, but they start to build up over time and they potentially cause even greater emotional discomfort in the long run. And let me tell you, I've got a couple other things around reaction formation, but it it is interesting because I want to talk about the human condition, that these are uh, wonderful psychological principles, but there's no part of me that's saying this is the only way that you can live or exist, or you must do these things that uh, Anna Freud said however long ago. Because I will tell you very clearly that I've done some reaction formation exercises with people that I have not been a huge fan of, maybe in my, uh, I think mainly in, in maybe my religious community or in previous employment. And I have gone in there and just said, okay, I'm going to just be present and positive and, and wonderful. But I also feel like that includes being curious and learning more about this person, finding more of a connection. And I can think of two examples where I really did develop a, a friendship or a fondness for people that I, I probably formed a, a reaction formation friendship to, to begin, but then it melded or molded into a genuine friendship over time. But I really understand, I feel like I understand the concepts, though, what Anna Freud's talking about is a defense mechanism to protect my ego is this form of, of signal anxiety because that reaction formation can also just be a way that we're covering up or masking our feelings or emotions. So, again, it can lead to inauthenticity, unresolved feelings, or ineffective coping. Reaction formation, is a, it's a temporary solution to what could be deemed a potentially larger issue. So, for, for example, if somebody consistently feels anger toward a colleague but only expresses kindness then they're not allowing themselves to address the root cause of their anger. And that might eventually hinder the resolution of the real issue. So that can lead to negative impact on relationships. Because if you are being inauthentic or you're being untruthful, that will strain relationships over time. I feel very confident about that. Whether you're in a marital relationship, if you don't have the ability or the tools to be able to express how you truly feel, then that can lead to you building up a a sense of, of resentment over time. And a person might uh, be able to, to keep up that facade for a while, but at some point, that's where I really believe the body keeps the score. That if you are not going to express yourself or, or get out of an unhealthy situation or relationship or find friend groups or a partner that you can be your authentic self with, that your body is going to say, all right, I'll do it. And, uh, and sometimes you find people find themselves with chronic fatigue or high blood pressure or fibromyalgia or pain or a, a lot of things because it's your own body saying, this is not, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel healthy and you're ignoring me. So I need to do something to get your attention. On my Waking Up to Narcissism podcast a few weeks ago, I gave a a little bit more of a somber example of this in a letter that was shared by somebody. And they were talking about, they were, they felt so unheard and unseen and unsafe and, and unvalidated in their, in their marital relationship that they had written in and said that they just wish that they would get some sort of terminal illness so that then they just, Maybe they would get a little bit of, of, of love and attention, but then they just would not have to do the hardness of life. 
and I talked about, and it broke my heart and I got really nice responses from it because I, I know this is something that people are, are feeling that if they don't feel like they're connected in their life in general, that that body is trying to signal that, hey, this is your one chance to live. So you really need to figure out how to do that. And so I feel like it often starts with anxiety. That anxiety is this signal, this warning to say, hey, listen to me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to do you, do you well. Now, again, it can be overprotective. Anxiety can cause you to worry about a whole lot of things that may or most likely won't happen. But then what an opportunity to self-confront and grow as you acknowledge that that's what these things are. That's a, a lot of what this episode's about today. But if the anxiety doesn't work, I feel like if I was going to sing a song, if the anxiety ain't going to get you, then maybe here comes depression. And then it says, okay, you know what? Let's just sit this one out. It's going to be better tomorrow. You know, I don't really want to do much of anything if you don't really feel like you're connected with the things you're doing. And unfortunately, I feel like on that natural progression, sometimes people go to that, I do, I wish something would just kind of happen to me. To then I, I call it the, I hope I get hit by a meteor theory where people will come into my office. And I, unfortunately, it, it's more often than, than one might think where they say, hey, I'm not suicidal. I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. But sometimes I just wish, you know, that something would, would again, a meteor would fall out of the sky and hit me. And then eventually I believe that if you are still not living a more authentic or values or purpose-based life, then that's where the suicidal thoughts or ideations start to creep in. And again, this is just a, a my thoughts, but I really believe that the brain as a don't get killed device, which I absolutely believe that is the case, that it's doing anything it can to live, to survive, even to the point of where it will habitualize things that are unhealthy because it knows that at least it knows what you're doing with your with yourself or with your life. New things are scary. That's where the yeah buts in life come from. Hey, I want to change careers. Well, yeah, but I don't know if I would be any good at that. I don't know if there are any job opportunities. I don't know what the if that we would be able to for, afford it financially. You know, I want to go back to school. Okay, that dopamine bump. And then, yeah, but, yeah, but I don't know if I have the time. I don't know if I'm still smart enough. Or somebody says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a marathon. Well, yeah, but I don't know. Is that really, is it good for you? Is it bad on your knees? I don't know if I have a time. I don't know if there's somebody that I can train with. That the yeah, buts come as the brain is a don't get killed device. So that same thing is happening, whether it's the anxiety, the depression, the, the you know, rumination, the trying to seek certainty, the people that just don't want to continue or to move forward, that their brain is screaming, hey, pay attention to me. And, and so when somebody gets to that point of where they have suicidal thoughts or ideations, I really do believe that the brain's saying, I don't know what else to do to get your attention. This is almost a Hail Mary pass. And there's a, the, the documentary about people that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and the people that have lived. And I think there's, I don't know, 50, 60 people. But if I'm remembering right, that when the people have let go, they don't say, ah, finally, sweet relief. It's like, oh, man, that is not what I wanted to do. So the brain is a don't get killed device. And so we have to figure out a way to, to be more authentic and live more, more authentically. So back to this reaction formation, and I've already covered that it can, it can lead to you feeling inauthentic and unresolved feelings, but it will also lead to ineffective coping. So reaction formation, again, this, that, that's hindering the real resolution of the issue. And then a negative impact on relationships. So we've covered that if you are being inauthentic or untruthful, it will strain those relationships over time. And this is where I start to even buy, feel like the concepts around energy and, and what you put out in a relationship, it becomes so important because that being inauthentic or untruthful, it, it does strain relationships over time because people may start to sense your inauthenticity or the person might eventually fail to keep up the facade. So if you are recognizing that you are frequently using reaction formation as a defense mechanism, it might be helpful to engage in therapy or counseling. A good trained mental health professional will hopefully provide strategies and techniques for starting to learn to deal with uncomfortable emotions in a healthier and more effective or direct way. And as you work through those underlying feelings and, and learn to manage them, it'll lead to just feeling far more authentic and, and being able to show up in relationships and be more present and find yourself in more satisfying relationships and, and more connected experiences. Let's, let's talk about displacement. Uh, that's another one. So reaction formation, we've got displacement. So this is a, a psychological defense mechanism that was first uh, proposed by Anna's dad, Sigmund, where an individual redirects their emotions or feelings from the original source towards something or somebody else that they feel is less threatening or more acceptable. This displacement is when you have your, if you have teenagers or little kids, and as the therapist, I say that classic cliched line when the person says, why do they yell at me, but not their teachers? And then I get to say, oh, because they feel safe, because they are displacing their anger, 
It's a psychological defense mechanism that they're redirecting their emotions or feelings from the original source, maybe frustration at school or feeling like they don't know, uh, they're not smart enough to do their homework or they don't have enough, um, they aren't part of a good friend group. So they will displace that anger on someone else that's less threatening or more acceptable. So this, this mechanism is often used when people find it difficult to express or manage their feelings toward the real object or the real person or the real situation because that seems a little risky or dangerous or socially unacceptable. Then they may lose their job if, if they displace or if they don't displace their anger, if they then all of a sudden tee off on their boss or, or, or at the board of directors. As an example, if a person's upset with their boss, but they fear the consequence that if they express that frustration, then they may lose their job. They may go home and snap at their family instead. Because in this case, the anger toward the boss, which is the original source, is displaced onto the family members, a theoretically safer target. So by, by using displacement, then individuals will avoid confronting the actual source of their emotions. And that will provide, again, here we go back to short-term relief from their feelings. But continued use of displacement can lead to problems. Problems if those underlying emotions aren't ever properly addressed. Let me talk then about displacement versus projection. And I think when I lay this out, it will seem like they are very different things, but I will have people sometimes say, is that projection or am I just displacing things? So displacement and projection, they're both defense mechanisms that people use to manage uncomfortable feelings or emotions, which is the theme of this episode, but they function in very different ways. So displacement, like we mentioned before, it involves redirecting emotions from the original source, often someone perceived as threatening or intimidating to a safer target. A person might displace their anger toward a boss onto a family member or a pet, unfortunately. And the fundamental idea here is that the emotion remains the same, but the target of the emotion changes. So displacement, then it does, it temporarily reduces these feelings of discomfort, but over the long term leads to misdirected anger or, or resentment from other people as well. And that will cause issues in unrelated areas of life. Now all of a sudden I have relationship issues with my spouse because I don't know how to deal with my emotions at work. So I'm displacing them onto my spouse. Now projection that occurs when people attribute their own unwanted thoughts or feelings or impulses onto somebody else. So rather than acknowledging that the, these uncomfortable aspects of themselves, then they look for those traits in others. So example, a person who often lies might accuse others of being dishonest. So they're projecting their own deceitful behavior onto other people. So that projection, it, it serves as a way to avoid taking responsibility for somebody's behavior or feelings by attributing them to others. So in essence, the primary difference between displacement and projection is how they handle uncomfortable emotions or behavior. So they be, there are definitely ways to get rid of the discomfort, but it's the way that they handle them. Displacement changes the target of the emotion, and then projection denies the emotion or behavior in yourself and then attributes it to others, which can just lead to some crazy making from the people you're around. When somebody's saying, you know how you always do fill in the blank, and if you're saying, I, I don't, I don't really feel like that's me at all. But... If you pull out the old, hey, I think you're projecting your, your feelings and emotions onto me, that typically doesn't uh, have the other person saying, oh man, thank you. Tell me more. Let me take a deep dive into that. But, but both of those mechanisms, uh, that displacement and projection, they serve to protect the ego, protecting that ego from discomfort and distress, but they lead to misunderstanding and strained relationships and a lack of self-awareness if they continue to be relied on over and over again. Psychological growth, it involves recognizing and finding healthier ways to deal with uncomfortable feelings and behaviors. And you first have to recognize and acknowledge that it is okay to have uncomfortable feelings and behaviors. Another example, a lady named Lucy, dedicated marketing manager. She's at a tech firm. She's been under a great deal of pressure because she's managing this high stakes project. So to top it off, her boss has been demanding and he's very dismissive. So the situation at work then causes Lucy to feel stress. But she feels like she doesn't have the tools or the ability or the power to stand up to her boss or express her frustrations at work because she thinks she could lose her job. So instead, what does Lucy do? She finds herself being irritable at home. She snaps at her partner over little issues. She picks fights over insignificant matters. She even gets mad at the dog for simply being playful. I mean, that one, so that, does that one resonate? If your kids are being adorable and cute or your dog is, but you're not having it, that's a you issue. So this is an example of displacement. Lucy is transferring her anger and her frustration from her boss and workplace where because the expressing those feelings seems too risky. So she's displaced it over to her home and her loved ones where she's not necessarily consciously aware, but it feels safer to let out those emotions. So by realizing that her behavior is straining her personal relationships, then that's what is going to hopefully cause her to address the issue because then if, you, if she can then sit with that discomfort, self-confront and grow, hopefully she'll recognize she's not really angry at her partner or the dog, 
but is displacing that work-related stress onto them. So if this is something that you are identifying with, well done, bravo. Maybe feel like uh, express that to your partner. And to overcome this, what do you do? Lucy starts practicing mindfulness, stress management techniques. Here's where I feel like raising that baseline. Self-care is not selfish. Get regular exercise into a routine. She starts practicing yoga, keeps a journal, writes things down, gets out her thoughts and her feelings. Uh, you know, next, then she maybe seeks out a mentor at work or opens up about the pressure she's facing. A mentor at work who already knows the rope, so to speak, can provide guidance and, and help. Maybe say, um, hey, I know, I, I feel, I have a better idea of what you're going through. And hopefully she's going to attend some sessions with a therapist to gain additional tools for managing stress or expressing her emotions appropriately. And sometimes just being able to express those emotions to the therapist and get them off of your chest is healing. And then if she does all that, here's where I say, man, raise that emotional baseline. That self-care is not selfish because then at that point, Lucy could even request a meeting with her boss where now she's in a position with her baseline raised and these new tools to tactfully communicate feelings and the stress she's been under. And yeah, it's going to be difficult. But, but if that's the case, she'd have an opportunity to express her concerns without being confrontational. So then I can only imagine, hopefully, if we want to say this worked out great, happily ever after, she rode home on a unicorn, passed by a pot of gold. You know, her boss, maybe initially surprised, all of a sudden appreciates Lucy's honesty and says, man, changes are going to be made because the reality is that is how change is made. Not by somebody just uh, acquiescing, displacing, and then just not dealing with things. I don't know, that's an example of how somebody might recognize and overcome displacement. It really is about recognizing the problem, developing the stress management techniques. It's, it does require seeking help and addressing the root of the stress. Those are the big steps in the process. So let's talk about projection then. So let's talk about, uh, we'll kind of go back into the world of corporate America. We'll call him John, mid-level marketing manager in a tech firm. So he's anxious about a forthcoming merger. And it's f- funny because I have some a situation going on right now with a client where there's a potential merger and there's a great deal of uncertainty. So that uncertainty in this scenario fuels his anxiety, makes him feel powerless. So rather than confront his own fears directly, because it would be absolutely normal for him to feel um, uncertain and feel anxious, he starts accusing other people in his department of not working hard enough, saying that it's, you know, what's going to be their lack of productivity. It's going to cost them their jobs when that merger happens, but he really doesn't know. So he's constantly criticizing his colleagues, even though they are doing their work the way that they do their work. So in that example, he's using projection as a coping mechanism. He's shifting his personal anxiety and fear about his job security onto everybody else, suggesting that they are the ones. You need to start worrying about losing your job because you're not, you're not being very productive. So by accusing others, then he gets to displace his anxiety and avoid confronting it directly. So then the criticisms he starts expressing to his colleagues are reflections of his own internal fears and insecurities. Now, because I like dealing in the world of emotional maturity and narcissism just for fun, I threw in an example here and then we'll wrap things up. Narcissistic projection. Let's consider a, I don't know, an individual named, let's use some alliteration, Ned, narcissistic Ned. Ned is very charming. So he's charismatic, often the life of the party, but he tends to shockingly prioritize his own needs and feelings over those of others. Over time, his friends have come to realize that Maybe Ned exhibits uh, some characteristics of emotional immaturity, and maybe we even say narcissism, because Ned fails to take responsibility for his actions, especially if they have negative consequences for others, because he cannot sit with any uncertainty or any discomfort. It is not his fault. Gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism. For example, Ned decided to borrow a friend's car, and he returned it with a dent and half full of gas, but he refused to accept blame. He didn't pay for the repairs. Instead, He accused his friend of, hey, you're, you know what? You're too attached to material possessions. And I kind of feel like you're being unreasonably picky. So in this case, Alex is using projection as a defense mechanism to cope with his shortcomings. So instead of acknowledging that my bad, his own irresponsibility and disregard for his friend's property, and it could have just been an accident, he projects those characteristics onto his friend. No, you are the one that cares more about things, accusing them of being materialistic and overly sensitive. And this allows him to shift the blame, maintain his self-image, refuse to confront his own flaws and his behaviors because those might be damaging to his relationships. And at his core, he is a 10-year-old boy who fears abandonment deeply. So that sort of behavior that is often observed in narcissistic or emotionally immature people who have a difficult time accepting their faults and tend to deflect responsibility onto others instead of engaging in self-reflection and growth, which is one of the biggest challenges in working with the emotionally immature or narcissistic people 
that in your life or just in general is they have this broken off exiled emotion of shame and fear and a deep fear of abandonment that that then they have this protector this protector emotion that is um that is is absolutely good at creating a new narrative in real time that is makes it not their fault it is someone else's fault because if it was their fault that is going to be so uncomfortable they feel like they may die so over time what it feels like to be them is it is not their fault it couldn't be their fault so therefore it must be your fault and as a matter of fact now they're really frustrated they even have to have this conversation and so now can you apologize please even though i'm the one that wrecked your car All right. Hey, thanks for taking the time today. I hope you got something out of today's episode. Go back and listen to episode one. If you did not hear that one, they they do go together like like chocolate and peanut butter, like peas and carrots, like salt and pepper, because that there's so many concepts that we need to be aware of in order to recognize that our feelings and emotions are there for a reason. But trying to manage that, that those feelings, those emotions, that certainty, while it's adorable that the brain wants to do that, it's not actually helpful. It's not very productive. And, uh, and that can really be a challenge. You know, real quick, I, <laughs> I want to do one more. I talked about that book on being certain. It's believing you're right even when you're not. So it's by this neurologist, Robert Burton. <laughs> I just found another Google Doc page where I had an example of this. So it, it explores this concept of certainty and how our brains are wired to interpret feelings as evidence of truth. And what Burton does is he, he just dives into the neuroscience behind the concepts around conviction or arguing you know, that our certainty in our beliefs or knowledge He's making the argument it's not necessarily a conscious choice or a logical conclusion, but almost like this just reaction or this mental sensation that functions much like other sensory perceptions. But his main point is that feelings of knowing or correctness or conviction and certainty, that they aren't even necessarily deliberate conclusions or conscious choices, but these just reactions or mental sensations that happen to us. And so he throws neurology, philosophy, other cognitive science to describe how the brain is naturally inclined to perceive itself as being correct, even in the face of contradictory evidence. That's what's crazy. So that mental tendency often leads to things like stubbornness, resistance to to new ideas, and sometimes leads to conflict and suffering, even uh, when these feelings of certainty are misguided or not based in fact. So an example, looking for certainty might be, suppose that somebody is in an unhappy marriage, but they are certain that staying married is the right thing to do because they have been, that is what they've been told. That's what they've been told. This is what you do whether it's conditioning by societal norms or familial expectations or just a deep fear of abandonment to believe that that this is what their lot in life is, even if it is to just endlessly suffer. So despite these clear signs of emotional distress and, and discontent, maybe their body has already gone from anxiety to depression to the meteor theory to even starting to contemplate or have suicidal ideations, that person sticks to the marriage, leading to prolonged unhappiness, resentment, emotional suffering. Then the individual's certainty which is essentially a belief not necessarily based on on evidence or the reality of their situation, but it's deeply ingrained. It's ingrained because of their personal, maybe even their societal bias. It has now become a source of suffering. And that that shows an example of how challenging our quest for certainty or holding on to certainty can sometimes almost blind us to the realities or possibilities of our situation, which causes unnecessary distress and suffering. Now, if we look at this as all of these things will be for our good and are an opportunity to self-confront and grow, then I can recognize here are the things that I'm missing in my relationship and I can find the tools as a way to, to try to express myself and, and, and try to have those things in my relationship because I feel like that is a huge step that we need to take before we just say, okay, I, I want to alleviate this discomfort. All right, there we go. Now, if you have questions, thoughts, um, feel free to send them over info or contact at tonyoverbay.com i appreciate you as always taking us out per usual the wonderful the talented aurora florence with her song it's wonderful have a great day we'll see you next time on the virtual couch compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind it's wonderful elastic waste and rubber ghost i'm floating
Develop distance, don't explode Allow the understanding through To heal the legs and hearts you broke The pain is wonderful The sheetrock walls just might implode Upon my mental strengths and powers I'm trying hard to shut them Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.